Welcome to Canada's National Bible Hour. This is Brian Albrecht, your host and president of Mission Go. Today our scripture is taken from the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, which says, Who has delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. This is a wonderful scripture that has quite a contrast between those of us who are being saved and those who are lost. We've been delivered from the power of darkness. We've been delivered from evil. We've been delivered from Satan's control in our life. And we've been transformed by the blood of Christ and the work that he did on the cross into his own kingdom. It's a wonderful transition that takes place in this verse, that those who are lost can be found, that there's a second power, a more powerful power, the Holy Spirit and God the Father drawing people to himself and God the Son doing the work of redemption on the cross of Calvary and shedding his own blood and paying for the debts for our sins and the power of his love as it comes into a person's life and it transforms them and draws them and they say yes to the Holy Spirit and they become believers in Jesus Christ. What a great transition takes place when a person is born again. This is a radio edition of Global Times. Today we have in our studio Jacob and Sharon Severage. Uh, Sharon, as we mentioned, is a daughter of one of our long-term missionaries with Global Outreach Mission, who also was trained at uh, Prairie Bible Institute. They're doing a great church planning ministry in India. They work at the Olive Garden Children's Home at present. And Jacob has been in the ministry for over 12 years and as a pastor for over seven years. 
He is still a very young man and has shared his passion about church planning and along the way. I asked how they met, and as you know, in India, they have arranged marriages. Jacob, and you said that uh, you asked your pastor to help in arranging this marriage? Uh, yeah, very true, because my parents were uh, looking a girl for me who was uh, not believing in Jesus because they uh, they wanted to see a rich girl for me, where which, which uh, to my father, uh, that was right. Uh, but for me, I'm, I was looking for a girl who is spiritual and uh, who, who loves Jesus and who can help me in the ministry. Wow, what a testimony. Your parents wanted somebody rich. I think all parents want somebody rich. <laughs> but you as a young man had enough wisdom to know that you wanted a wife who would help you in the ministry and help you become a man of God. What a great goal, and we're so thankful that you and Sharon got together and God is blessing you together as missionaries. And you shared your passion to church plan in areas that are more remote in India. And you've met many pastors who are already doing that with Global Outreach Mission. Raja Severaj was your dad, Sharon. I know that he found Jacob to be a young man who wants to serve God and wants you to marry him. So your dad was very positive towards the marriage as well. How does that feel for a young Indian woman? Well, um, I suppose I was of the same mind as my husband before we, had, we, before we were married. Um, I knew that the Lord had called me to India, and I knew that I knew that I was to um, help out with the children's ministry. And in my heart, I uh, this was my prayer and a desire, a real longing in my heart was, God, provide me with somebody who can understand what it means to work with children, and who can understand what it means to work for you. And when I met, or, or rather, when I had heard about. Um, Jacob, and my dad had told me about him and some of his past, I, I just committed to God and I said, Lord, if this is your will, and if this is what you want, then I'm up for it. I think a lot of people in North America who are not used to having arranged marriage would look at that and say, that's a bad thing. But yet in your eyes, it was a tremendous act of faith because you were both praying for spouses that would help you fulfill God's purposes for you on earth. And that is such a tremendous testimony. So you did get married, and you also have a little girl, Ella, and she is such a sweetheart. And now you are ministering together, assuming some responsibilities at the Olive Garden Children's Home. Tell us about this ministry at the Olive Garden. Okay, so we have um, uh, 50 girls um, who are, are staying at our children's home and about 22 boys who are staying at our boys' um, home. And so that's altogether 72 children that we that we work with, and most of them come from broken homes or, and very poor backgrounds, so their parents can't afford them uh, their schooling or can't afford them a good living condition, living a home uh, and meals and things like that. So your part in your ministry then is offering to these children a place to live, sleep, and get an education, but also a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, that is very true. That is definitely something we are focusing on um, and wanting them to um, be comfortable just being a child. Because most children in India, they don't, they're not able to just be a child. They have to be so grown up. They have to understand all these different um, situations and how to get through life. But, but in the end of it, they, don't, they can't enjoy their childhood. And so we really want them to be able to just be a child. 
and enjoy that when they're with us here at the home and also to learn that there is someone like Jesus who love them and take care of them and their future. Praise the Lord for your lives and for your ministry and for your testimony and how you came to Christ and how you got married. Thank you for sharing all these wonderful things that God has done in your life. And I just want to commend you for the faith that you have and the trust that you have and the way that God has led you throughout your your lives. And I would ask many of our listeners to be in prayer for Jacob and Sharon Sivaraj in southern India. Thank you again, and God bless you in a mighty way. Thank you for listening to Canada's National Bible Hour. We're so thankful for those who pray for our ministry and also those who support our ministry because you know this is a listener-supported program and we cannot continue to be on the air without the support of our listeners. Many have put us in their will and have helped us that way and then others send in their donations. This, this month we're offering a wonderful booklet on spiritual gifts what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. One way the Holy Spirit empowers believers in the church is by creating ministries, opportunities to serve. Each believer contributes to the growth, both in numbers and in maturity of the church. If the Holy Spirit is the fire that gives the body warmth and life, believers are the members of the body that keep it moving. The Holy Spirit empowers believers to be part of these ministries. The spiritual gifts, then, are tools that we use to carry on those ministries. The function of spiritual gifts is service. Paul's main interest in his letters to the early churches is to teach, guide, and help them to grow as a body of Christ. You want to make sure that you get a copy of this booklet because it not only talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but how it relates to believers as they try to serve the Lord, and then also how they are used in the church to grow the body of Christ. And so you can write to Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario, L2R7 Alpha 7, or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo, New York, 14231. Please write and get this booklet. I'm sure it will enhance your spiritual life. Today's message is from Reverend Art Larson, and the subject is revival. 
I know that you will enjoy this message very much. Printed copies are available upon request. One day a man asked a boy, Do you pray? No, sir, he replied. I carry a rabbit's foot. The man said to him, If a rabbit's foot is so helpful for you to carry, why didn't it help the rabbit? Well, the boy didn't know what to say, but the man, a Christian man, went on to explain to him that praying really does help because God, who is all-powerful, answers prayer. I want to continue today, Thoughts on Revival. In the last message, I mentioned that revival is the extraordinary work of God producing extraordinary results. Revival is when God draws near and manifests his holy presence. All true revival is about God bringing glory back to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit through his church. Biblical revival, supremely centered in the person of Christ and dominated by him. Therefore, we begin looking at questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels, questions that will search our hearts about revival and cause us to respond in prayer. There are three prayers we can pray. Habakkuk 3.2, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Psalm 85.6, Wilt thou not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? And then Psalm 143, verse 11, Revive me, O Lord, for your namesake. We experience what Charles Finney said when we pray like that. Revival is simply a new beginning of obedience with God. Revival is a time when Christians are restored to their first love for Christ, when sham and hypocrisy are exposed, bitterness and strife are revealed, and changes that affect the lives of true believers in Christ are made so visible that unsaved sinners realize and see that they need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as they see him in the lives of believers who are revived and returned to their first love with fervency. Of course, the great tool that brings revival is prayer in accordance with the scriptures. I want to speak on that today. As we look at the questions Jesus asked, we began with the question concerning our confession of him. Is it real or is it a sham confession? Is it genuine or is it just head knowledge? Is it a heart confession? The question in Matthew fifteen sixteen that Jesus asked is this, Who am I to you? Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Flesh and blood has not revealed it to you. You don't have a second-hand faith, Peter. You're not just saying words. You're not repeating something another human being, flesh and blood, told you to say. You're saying something my Father has revealed to you from heart conviction. For a man looks on the outward appearance, but God was looking on Peter's heart. The first question relates to a personal heart relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a genuine Christian? Are you for real? Now today we look at the question that relates to our communion with him. That question is found in Matthew 26:40. I want to read the verses that precede it and the situation that had de developed just prior to Jesus going to the cross. Can you imagine the weight and the personal agony that he was going through as he approached that for which he had come? The lamb slain from the foundation of the world was now approaching that moment those hours when he would die for the sins of the world, yours and mine, on the cross of Calvary. All the forces of hell were out to oppose him. Jesus went to a place called Gethsemane. Reading now in Matthew 26, verse 36, he took with him his disciples and he said, sit here while I go and pray yonder. Then he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, 
And he began to be sorrowful and very depressed and said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, O oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he comes back to the disciples, verse 40, and finds them asleep. And he says unto Peter, here's the question today for you and me, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Then Jesus added, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What? Could you not pray with me? Could you not watch with me? Could you not agonize with me? Could you not seek the Father with me one hour? It's a question about our communion. Prayer keeps our life on a constant miracle basis. In fact, when we think of prayer and revival, one cannot help but understand something of the tremendous way in which prayer has brought revival in the past. They used to have what is called prayer movements or general awakenings over the past, say, 300 years. George Whitfield, great preacher of the awakening in the early 1700s, encouraged what he called concerts of prayer. People would gather and begin together, openly praying out loud, seeking the face of God. What a beautiful sound it must have been. And they turned it into concerts of prayer. Today, we can get hundreds and thousands of people out to a concert of music. There's nothing wrong with that. Wonderful Christian music that edifies and encourages. But ask people to come out to pray, and you get a handful. Jonathan Edwards, in response to reports of prayer concerts in Scotland back in those days, called on Christians who had already been touched by the general awakenings in the 1730s and 1740s to continue uniting in concerts of prayer until God completed the work which he had begun. Oswald Chambers quotes, Prayer does not just fit us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. Armand Geswin, a man who's written much on prayer, says, We have forgotten that when Christ built his church, he built a prayer meeting. It started with a prayer meeting in the upper room. In fact, in one of his books, Armand Geswin says, Unless we learn to pray and wrestle in prayer, we shall get into the wrong battle and lose the hot battle of words and the class of personalities. The Lord had 120 knockers in prayer. He shut them all up to pray in the upper room. He taught them to do all their knocking in prayer, and then he never had the problem of knocking in his church, of people knocking one another. So prevalent today. How we need revival. We must begin by knocking in prayer. We must quit knocking one another, the pastor, the music, Knocking this and knocking that. What if God were to give spiritual awakening with such depth that every evangelical student on campuses worldwide would begin working with, say, 10 international students? Or what about all the unreached villages and towns throughout many of the continents of the world? Think of what prayer can do to bring revival and stir hearts. In fact, it was F.B. Meyer that said, through the Bible there are golden promises and they must be uh, given in prayer in order for them to become operative. Matthew Henry says we must turn God's promises into prayer, and then they shall be turned into performances, into concerts of prayer. Wouldn't it be great to see those start today? I would encourage you to get a wonderful audio or video message that Pastor Jim Cimbala of the Brooklyn Tabernacle gave, I believe it was in about 1997, at a praise gathering in Indianapolis, Indiana. This message is a remarkable message of great conviction. It's called 
My house shall be called a house of prayer. It will touch your life. It will touch your church. It will get us to understand what God does in answer to prayer, and it will get us praying. I have used that uh, message in meetings in many places, and it has touched hearts deeply. Well, Jesus said, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Here were these disciples with Jesus in a crisis hour just before the cross. He's in agony. In fact, Luke tells us that as he prayed, blood drops fell from his body in the agony with which he prayed. He was facing the redemption of the world, the long-promised Messiah, and the long promise of redemption through the sacrifice, the one sacrifice for sins forever that he was about to make. It was right there on the horizon, and the disciples were too tired. They were sound asleep. And Jesus comes back and asks them, What could you not watch with me one hour? I wonder today, would you consider your church a great church? If so, why do you consider it that? Well, you might say, We have a great morning service, or we have two or three morning services. You might even say, Well, we have had all these programs. But I would simply ask you, What is your prayer meeting like? What are your prayer programs in your church? What kind of prayer ministries do you have? In fact, many today don't even have a Sunday evening service. And of course, long ago, the Wednesday night or whatever night of the week it was, the corporate prayer meeting was canceled. Even those who have a prayer meeting find that it's mostly a Bible study with very little prayer. If you do not have a beautiful, vibrant prayer ministry in your church, and I say this to myself as well as to you, then you do not have a great church in the sight of God. A great church is a praying church in obedience to his command. A great Christian in the sight of God is a praying Christian. Jesus said men ought always to pray and not to faint. If you don't pray, you faint. A great Christian is going to make a difference. This is the Christian who prays. And we sing hymns like Sweet Hour of Prayer, but when we look at the question like Jesus asked, what could you not watch with me one hour? We have to say, when was the last time I ever prayed for an hour? Or was even in a one-hour prayer meeting? It's a sad state of affairs today in the church when God is waiting to send revival. He is waiting. Waiting until we become desperate enough to quit depending on our plans, our programs, and all of our seminars and all the other things, good as they may be, that seek to motivate one another to do things we instead must just get down on our face before God and start praying, praying in desperation, knowing that that's the only answer. Only God can solve the problems of today, praying, seeking his face in heartfelt obedience so that we don't faint. Prayer is asking and receiving. There are two parts to prayer, your part and God's part, my part and God's part. Our part is to ask, God's part is to answer. If we do our part, God will do his part. Prayer is an invitation. God says in Jeremiah 33, 3, Call unto me and I'll answer you. I'll show you great and mighty things which you do not know. How slow we are to ask. We worry, we wrangle, we scheme, we slave, we pout, we plan. But we don't ask. And James says you have not because you ask not. Isn't that a strange and shameful way to treat Almighty God's invitation? And how quickly we give up in prayer. I'm guilty of that too. I remember remember reading about a food editor of a newspaper who took a telephone call one day. The voice on the other end of the line said, how long do you roast a 20-pound turkey? Just a minute, she replied as she turned to consult her cooking chart. Thanks, said the caller and hung up. 
many of us are like that caller. We have a problem. We pray, but then we don't wait for the answer. And then we do it the wrong way. That's why many prayers are not answered. We don't pray for an hour anymore. We don't even pray one minute or five minutes. In prayer, we accept God's invitation to allow him to employ his wisdom, his wealth, his work in the alleviation of all our distresses. It's like opening the door to a doctor's office and turning the sick one over to his compassionate care. It's like opening the door to a billionaire and allowing him to grant his wealth to meet needs. It's not coaxing or coercing God, but giving him permission to help us as his wisdom, power, and love directs when we confess that we have nothing. Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. God says he will send revival on his conditions. He promises if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and then I will heal their land, Second Chronicles 7.14. If you truly know him as personal Savior, then the Holy Spirit comes to live within your heart then he himself comes to live within your heart. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Since Jesus prayed that the spirit of prayer will be your spirit, and you will want to pray, and you will want to remain in a spirit of prayer as the Holy Spirit prompts that from within, you'll take various times to pray. You'll certainly attend prayer meetings. You'll be one of the prayer warriors in your church, a prayer partner with your pastor. God is waiting to revive us. Ron Dunn once said, and this is fantastic, listen carefully, prayer is the Christian's secret weapon for the kingdom of God. It is like a missile that can be fired toward any spot on earth, travel undetected at the speed of thought, and hit its target every time. Oh, that God would get us praying and that we would see in these days the answer to the flood of sin and evil that has engulfed our land and invaded the church. Oh, that we would spend time in prayer, that we would be on our faces before God, crying out for his mercy. Revive thy work. Wilt thou not revive us again? Revive me according to thy word. I pray that God will bring a spirit of prayer upon the churches and believers in Canada, in the United States, in North America in these days. I'm asking God to do that in my heart. Will you ask him to do it in yours today? Let's continue seeking the face of God for revival until he answers as only he can in a way that will bring amazement to us and salvation of multitudes of people. Why not start a revival prayer meeting in your church? Remember the revival that started in 1972 in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, swept over much of Canada? It can happen again, but it must begin in you and in me by prayer. I trust the message you just heard will be a real blessing to your spiritual life and will help you grow in a closer relationship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here at Canada's National Bible Hour, we're really concerned about those who may be listening to our broadcast who don't know Jesus Christ personally and have a personal relationship with Him each day. The Bible is very clear. It points out, it's out over and over that we are all sinners, all sin and come short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
All of us have sinned and done things that we're ashamed of, things that we know that we shouldn't have done, and yet we did them anyway. And of course, we have a holy God who's pure, who's perfect, is righteous, and is totally holy. And because of that, those facts, he can't be in the presence of sinners, any sin. And so he has to judge sin. But he made a way because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the simple act of faith, if you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God who became man, who went to the cross and bore your sins in his own body, he took your place, he took the anger that God has towards your sins and put it on Jesus, he died and he rose on the third day. If you believe those things and are sincere in your beliefs, you can bow your head and you can ask the Lord Jesus Christ to come into your life. Because John 1.12 says, But as many as receive him, receive Jesus. Unto them gave he the right to become the Son of God. If you want to be a child of God, receive Christ as your personal Savior. Don't forget to write in to get your copy of the booklet, Spiritual Gifts. I know that this will help your spiritual life, and I know that it will be a real blessing to you and to those that you share it with. You can write Canada's National Bible Hour, Box 1210, St. Catharines, Ontario, L2R, 7A7, or in the United States at Box 2010, Buffalo, New York, 14231. You can also listen to past messages on Canada's National Bible Hour by visiting our website at www.missiongo.org. And please remember us in your prayers. We trust the Lord will be with you throughout this next week 